Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Listening to Aging in Community, a special project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. I think the senior centers provide a lot of our older adults with that sort of home away from home feeling. It's it's like the cheers of if people remember that TV show where you'd walk in and everybody knows your name and you're greeted. Uh, in, in a very welcoming environment, and there are services and resources that you can get access to. There are nearly 10,000 senior centers across the United States serving a million older adults each day. Today we're at Seven Oaks Senior Center in suburban Perry Hall, Maryland, outside Baltimore. Local residents can exercise here and take classes on topics ranging from democracy to driver safety. Jill Hall is the chief of senior centers at the Baltimore County Department of Aging. Once you first come in the doors, you are just um, now given this whole world of opportunity. Then you can volunteer, you can become a leader on the executive boards at most of the centers, you can teach, you can you know, just socialize with people and, and get out of your homes gives you somewhere if your spouse has passed away or if you um, move to a new community to be near your children or you recently retired. It sort of gives you that ready-made group of, of friends that you can um, connect with and be engaged with. The senior centers here are supported by independent nonprofit organizations. At Seven Oaks, there's no membership fee, although they may charge for individual classes or events. As I entered the lobby drenched from a heavy rain, a couple of friendly older women welcomed me in. Volunteering is a way they give back. There's sort of a range of different opportunities from just being, um, you know, there's some companion programs or some working with children, um, reading programs. We're right here at this location, we're right beside a school, and the seniors go over and read to the kids over at the school. Do they enjoy that? Oh, they love it. Yeah, they love it. And the kids love it, too. <laughs> so it's nice to have that, that connection. And I think for, you know, some children, they don't have grandparents living locally. They don't have that opportunity to learn. Um, I think they find it very interesting when they hear from the older adults what their experiences were like as, as children. Uh, I went to one, one of our centers has a very active veterans program. And one of the best programs I've seen was they went to the fifth grade and third grade classes with all their World War II regalia, their uniforms, um, other things that they had kept from the war, and explained to these kids, you know, what it was like to actually be in World War II. And the, the kids were just astounded. They thought that was the most, I've never seen a group of kids, there was probably a couple hundred of them in the gym, so quiet, because they were just in awe of these stories that they were hearing. Sure. 
Seven Oaks is open to people age 60 or older. Penny Brown is a former school administrator who comes regularly. She retired early due to several bouts of cancer. Penny, who lives nearby with her husband, sometimes meets up here with her mother, who's also a member of the center. I'm usually here every day because I go to the gym and exercise. Um, we have events that are planned, um, celebrations. Um, we have TED Talks. So you sit around and view a video? And then we discuss. We have um, movie days. We have bingo. Um, we also have a singing group that I participate. So we practice here, and then we go out in the community and entertain. Have you made new friends here? Yes. Everyone um, at the center since um, my first day coming has been very welcoming. I think because of all my chemo, I can't always remember everyone's name, but um, I remember their face and how they helped me and enjoy, you know, talking with and finding out about them and, you know, listening to them because a lot of our seniors especially just need someone to listen because if they live at home or live by themselves and this is their social time, they really enjoy having someone that just sits and listens. And I enjoy doing that. Like Penny, the vast majority of older adults experience one or more major health challenges, and nearly half have some form of disability. Nancy Bach, also a member of the Senior Center, was recently declared legally blind. She's been living on her own since her husband passed away some years back. Uh, my current situation is that because of my vision, I am unable to drive. And that has been the most devastating thing that has happened to me. Um, but I have a network of friends, a network of friends here at the center, and I have great support from my family. And so I use my network of friends to help me to get to the center, to get back home. I also have a daughter who belongs to the senior center as well, and she would hear me speak about the things that we do here, and she would say, oh, Mom, I cannot wait until I can come to the center with you. And so we exercise here together. And that's really is a very pleasant thing. Nancy also gets enjoyment from her gardening and on the day we met was particularly excited about her heirloom tomatoes. And she has another source of comfort as well. I can tell you that my faith um, gives me strength and it gives me peace. And I talked to a lot of seniors here uh, in the past year uh, who were home alone, lots of them. And um, if I shared something of my faith with them, it really encouraged them. And I think that seniors need a lot of encouragement. Nancy was also uplifted recently on learning she's eligible for a program through the Maryland Division of Rehabilitation Services. That gives her access to a device for people who are visually impaired. It is a uh, machine that you can place a book under, and then you can adjust knobs and light and contrast, and, um, and I am able to actually read. I can read. There are other things that I have on my phone. I have a seeing AI. It's artificial intelligence. I can place my iPhone over your paper there, 
and it will read to me. There's been explosive growth in the field of assistive technology, special equipment, software programs, or other products that are used to improve the functional capacities of people with disabilities. Older adults are a major beneficiary. But younger people as well, like 35-year-old John Duval in Pittsburgh, an assistive technology researcher who's also a wheelchair user. I was actually um, sled riding with um, some fraternity brothers um, when I was a junior in college uh, here at the University of Pittsburgh. And I um, was going down a hill on an inner tube and I hit kind of a bump. And it, you know, being an inner tube, I kind of bounced off of the inner tube and flew down the hill and landed on my head. Um, so it was, uh, it was n- not the night I expected to be having. John did suffer a spinal cord injury that prevents him from walking. He's presently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Pittsburgh, where he works at the Human Engineering Research Laboratories. John told me he takes the view that bad things can happen to anyone and that what defines us is how we handle those human challenges. To be honest, like that, I probably wouldn't even be in this field if that hadn't happened to me because, you know, I was in a mechanical engineering program at Pitt at the uh, at that time and probably like most people going into mechanical engineering I wanted to you know design cars or planes or you know something like that and you know after having the spinal cord injury it was actually my doctor who said have you ever considered rehab engineering um, and I didn't even know that was a thing so I looked into it and did an internship at the the human engineering research labs where I work now and you know, really loved what I was doing. And it was, you know, I felt like it was making more of an impact in people's lives than developing a new car, you know. So I, uh, I, I just kind of stuck with it. And that's, that's why I ended up here. John wrote his Ph.D. dissertation about a bed that can function as a scale for wheelchair users so they can weigh themselves at home. I asked him about a variety of developments in assistive technology, For example, an Apple Watch that comes with the ability to measure the amount of blood flowing through your wrist and thus calculate your heart rate. And if you fall, it can detect that and automatically dial 911. Features that could really help vulnerable older adults. I think if they're open to it, um, it could be a lot more than just a watch. Um, You know, we even some of the technologies that we have here, um, obviously, the watch can tell, you know, if you fall, um, you know, some of those things. I actually kept mine because I'm a wheelchair user. um, And if I fall out of my chair and I can't reach my phone, you know, I'm kind of in that commercial that I've fallen and I can't get up. um, But I can make a call on my watch. So and it's going to be on the floor with me. So um, that's actually one of the reasons why I decided I wanted to keep wearing one was, you know, in case of an emergency like that, that I could, you know, make a call myself. Or, you know, if I fall out of my wheelchair, it's probably going to realize that that was a pretty big fall. This is Bakery Square in Pittsburgh, where a former Nabisco factory has been transformed into a Google headquarters. And it's where I joined John Duval to discuss a project he works on to map local sidewalks. The aim is to help people with special mobility needs, including many elders, to get around safely. He's hoping that popular services like Google Maps will eventually include more information about sidewalks. Um, They know a little bit, some places of where maybe a path exists or, 
um, something, but they actually most of the time don't know if a sidewalk is even next to the street. Um, so there's there's a disclaimer that pops up and says, um, you know, the condition or existence of a sidewalk is unknown. Um, and what we want to do is basically make those known um, so that um, people could know there's a sidewalk here. What's the condition of the sidewalk? And am I going to be able to get through it if you're a wheelchair user or somebody that has a visual disability or, or any type of disability? Or even an older adult with a walker. Yeah. With the passage in 1990 of the Americans with Disabilities Act, people started noticing those small sidewalk ramps required at each corner of intersections, a huge safety boost for people with special needs. But if the ramp is too high off the street, it can be hazardous. You have less traction, you know, the chair can kind of tip over or slide. It's just a very, very dangerous situation to try to go over something like this. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that there's clear guidelines for how to solve the issue by sloping it down, you know, to the street. Actually, the ADA guidelines say any change from surface should be less than a quarter of an inch. Um, and if it's uh, or less than a half of an inch, if it's got a, a bevel uh, on the corner of it, which essentially just means it's rounded. Um, this And is this close to two inches? Probably. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what my guess would be. It would be very, very difficult for, um, you know, somebody in a manual chair or a power chair to get over. We're exploring how some communities have begun to adapt to the huge and growing cohort of older adults. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this project, Aging in Community, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. For the first time in the history of the world, we are about to embark upon a point at which there are more older people than there are children. At the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, Edwin Walker serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Aging. He says the United States has slowly been coming to terms with the needs of our elders, the original landmark change in federal policy came in 1935 when President Franklin Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act. It was the nation's first system of old age benefits for workers. Today, a hope of many years standing is in large part fulfilled. The civilization of the past hundred years with its startling industrial changes, has tended more and more to make life insecure. Young people have come to wonder what would be their lot when they came to old age. Social security was heralded as a major advance in public policy. Some critics in Congress declared that ensuring old age pensions was the responsibility of individuals, not the role of government. But the law passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Still, it excluded from the safety net agricultural workers and domestic workers, a substantial portion of whom were African Americans. The next wave of old age protections was adopted 30 years later. Edwin Walker. 
since 1965 with the development of the Older Americans Act. It was part of President Johnson's three-part strategy to combat the war on poverty because in 1965, most older people lived in poverty without the ability to access a hospital or a physician and didn't have supports at home. And so the three-part strategy consisted of passing Medicare, Medicaid, and the Older Americans Act. Medicare was officially introduced as an expansion of Social Security to provide health care for Americans age 65 and older. When President Lyndon Johnson signed it into law, he traveled to the Harry Truman Library, citing the long dream by his predecessor who sat in attendance. It was a generation ago that Harry Truman said, and I quote him, Millions of our citizens do not now have a full measure of opportunity to achieve and to enjoy good health. Well, today, Mr. President and my fellow Americans, we're taking such action 20 years later. These laws have since become deeply rooted. Over 64 million Americans now collect Social Security benefits, and about 61 million are covered by Medicare. It's so popular that in recent surveys, only 6% of Medicare recipients are dissatisfied, and three-fourths of Americans oppose any cuts to Social Security benefits. But growing older in America is a shifting landscape. We're working on what the role is of older adults. We're living longer than ever. Janet Seckel-Sarati is a Boston-area social worker and longtime advocate for elders. She's been pondering America's demographic changes at a time when some 70 million baby boomers are entering the retirement years. How can we create family systems? How can we create economic systems that make it viable for us all to um, live, a, live a good life throughout, throughout our lifespan? Part of that is having walkable and safe communities, parks nearby. A lot of it has to do with architecture of our communities and uh, having safe spaces so you can walk to a nearby park because that's often where you meet people. Somebody will sit at the bench next to you, making sure there are benches around. A lot of older people who can walk and also people who are, have disabilities of any kind or just who aren't that strong won't take walk, long walks somewhere because there's no place to sit. You know, even on the sidewalk in an urban place just have a, to stop so you can do your own shopping you know, you can actually walk, but you might need to rest a little bit on the way if it's too many blocks. And so just places where people can sit, meet each other, stop, get out on their own so you're not so reliant on other people getting out. Janet also emphasizes the need for accessible public transit services for older adults, especially at a time of life when many people have outgrown their ability to drive safely. In some cases, it's it's income, too. They can't afford to have a car, and, and they don't want to tra travel on public transportation. Jill Hall of the Baltimore County Department of Aging. And that sort of builds the isolation. And if you don't have um, friends or family that can bring you to a senior center or to other community services, then it, it sort of becomes a self-perpetuating thing that, well, I, I'm afraid to fall, so I won't go out. I actually, my mother-in-law sort of has this, this issue that she fell once, and now she's afraid of falling. So she's limited all her activity, which is the worst thing she can do. She needs to be out and moving and, and taking you know, classes where she can learn to uh, improve her balance and things like that. But I think individuals 
because of that fear um, or lack of resources, then they don't they don't um, get out. And and then once they're isolating in home, they are much more likely to suffer from depression, malnutrition, um, and dementia, all sorts of other health factors impact them. So breaking through that isolation and actively cultivating social connections enhances quality of life and gives a sense of meaning. Janet Seckel-Sarati leads Friendship Works, a Boston-based organization that matches older adults with volunteers who provide friendly visits. Many years ago, uh, a young man uh, who was actually a medical student who was matched with an older gentleman who was living alone in like a one-room apartment. The volunteer actually bought a chair because he didn't want to sit, you know, on the bed. He didn't even have an extra chair in his apartment. And they visited weekly. And a year and a half into their match, the gentleman um, passed away. And the volunteer said to me something that was stunning. And he said, I think he felt it was okay to go because he knew I held his story. He knew somebody would remember him and that he was going to live on in someone else. And he said, you know, he just felt that he needed that and that allowed him to go and to go in peace. How how beautiful and amazing is that? But oftentimes it's not about fixing, it's about walking with somebody and being by their side. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Jake Kavicki, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Noel Flatt, Haggerty Media, Wesley Family Services, David Cruz, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part of our project Aging in Community is Humankind Program number 285. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.